Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. We are extremely grateful for the support of our members and sponsors who continue to support us through this uncertain time. This episode is brought to you by premium sponsors of the 2020 World Congress, including Shuko USA, Karari America, Pole Facades, Techniform North America, Walter P. Moore, Roshman Group, and Permastalisa North America. Check out the links in our show notes for more information on these leading industry organizations. This is Mick. I'm here with Keith Boswell with SOM and Peter Weismantle with uh, Adrian Smith and Gordon Gill, both expert leading edge tall building designers. And our topic for today is all things tall buildings uh, and particularly the skins on tall buildings. So welcome, guys. Nice to have you here. Great to be here. Yeah. So uh, everybody's uh, gotten used to working in their home offices now. And so when I say uh, thanks for being here, it means, uh, you know, in the cloud <laughs> online. <laughs> so, it's it's yeah. thanks for being there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being there. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's let's start, you know, at the beginning with design, you know, with the tall buildings them- themselves. Uh, I- I'd like each of you guys to speak to uh, the process that you guys use in your uh, respective offices uh, when a new project comes in, um, how you evaluate that project, and, and particularly, you know, these th- this issue of uh, of uh, which I'm always curious about the owner's project requirements, the OPR document, uh, and the basis of design, uh, the BOD. I mean, uh, I- I'm curious if th- these are part of your process on all projects or some projects um but if you guys keith you want to you want to kick it off and talk about how you how you do this at som sure um and i think peter and i will probably exchange on this because there's a lot of parallels i think in how folks go about it but when there's a new design opportunity while you know the the genesis or the the thesis of your question is you know the tall building and all skins with the tall building, every tall building, while it brings its unique aspects of, um, of its building typology, it definitely needs to be of its place. And by of its place, that is cultural um, aspects of, of the environment that it's in. That's the actual, you know, mother nature environment of where it, is located. So those are factors that are, whether explicitly stated or implied, are embedded in, you know, when an architect and an architectural team, because it is done by a team, um, is just, that's just what they take into account. So on your specifics of owner's project requirements, when someone's setting out to do you know, a tall building and, and we're going to say, you know, tall building is really tall building. Um, you know, let's just say it's, you know, 40 floors or more, whether you're in feet or meters. Um, owners who do this, um, do this for a living. So they, they definitely come with a suite of, of project or owner requirements. And then there's definitely got to be a, you know, after there's a review of that, there's definitely got to be a discussion to make sure that, you know, there's, there's an understanding of those requirements. And with those discussions always come up some additives that go into that. Now on the basis of design, that is something that I think is created as a result of the things I mentioned before. And you know, and, and again, with with each location, each um, each climate uh, that the buildings exist in, those that basis of design, while it may be, you know, a listing of everything from you know wind to seismic to water to to whatever to you know rain and all that kind of thing, those definitely have to be fine tuned. So that's sort of a a big picture intro, and you know that's how our design teams approach it. And I would really emphasize the word team. So I'm going to let Peter uh, go through that as well. 
Yeah, I, I think you you're, uh, you hit on a couple of very key points of its place. And as you, you mentioned, its environment, which which obviously is is uh, has a lot to do with the, uh, the physical surroundings, but it's also it's it's a cultural environment. And so when we talk about owner's project requirements, uh, we actually find that we have different types of owners. There's there's the developer, uh, which is usually an organization that has done it before and uh, kind of knows what it's want what it wants. And it will give a very um, uh, a very concise owner's project uh, list of project requirements. But there are other others that are kind of doing it for the first time, and especially when we get into competitions for for iconic buildings, iconic tall buildings, those uh, owners or or clients have more aspirational uh, requirements as opposed to like specific bottom line, make a profit <laughs> developer requirements. So then that feeds back into the basis of design. Is it aspirational? Is it you know meant to do more than just put money in, in the bank for, for the developer? Uh, or is it or is it uh, you know is it kind of a bottom line project? Even even a bottom line project, because these are big projects, tend to be aspirational iconic anyway, just by just by their size. So, so I think I think of its place uh, was a very good way to, to put it. One, one other quick thing to add on to that, and I think for what architects go through, and with the two that you're talking to here, it does allow and require project teams to think with both sides of their brain. You've got to think with the qualitative side, which usually is more in, you know, addressing what Peter perfectly called the aspirational points and the quantitative side, because there's always metrics that are established and, and how to go about establishing a basis of design to address those metrics so that as design is conceived and as it evolves, you're trying to not only hit but exceed those. Correct. And of course, you know, the basis of the design, if we're talking about big projects, tall, tall projects, uh, also includes uh, uh, a, a heavy dosage of, of uh, I'll, I'll call it, I don't want to use the word limitations, but technology and logistics uh, input um, that that uh, smaller projects don't have. Uh, you know, you're not going to transfer out 80 floors, uh, you know, with a with a small transfer beam at the bottom of a of a super tall tower. Uh, so 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 it does it does kind of feedback that way also. So this this uh, you know these documents the OPR and the BOD are, are these a, a formal part of of uh, uh, the process of of both of your firms? And I ask this because I ask this question a lot. I'm very curious about you know how these processes work and, and these documents in particular. Uh, and I've talked with a, a, you know a surprising number of architects that are like, yeah, that really isn't a formal part of our process. Yeah, a lot of times we actually have to create the owner's project document. Um, yeah, and 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 which is which sounds kind of backwards, and and but it does also have to do with the na- the nature of these of these very tall buildings. Sometimes. Um, you will have though uh, sophisticated owners. They'll come to you with a with a brief. I you know um, I know I know uh, uh, Keith Keith's firm does a lot of hospitality work, and um, you know it's not unusual to get from a hospitality client to get uh, a, a series of of books that if stacked, uh, you know from the floor up would exceed the height of your desk. Um, they're, they're, they're very precise and they, they know what they want and they, because they know how, how their, their properties work. Whereas for instance, um, especially in the case of a competition, competition for, for kingdom tower was the, the owner's brief was basically three paragraphs, um, which, <laughs> which, which for, a, a you know, a three plus million square foot building is not a lot. True. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll add to that mix the short answer to your question, which is, you know, do we do it as, um, you know, sort of as a, a standard's not the right word, but do we do we actually create one? The short answer is yes. Um, and I think that's a smart approach because in the do it once, do it right mentality, 
the more that can be um, put forward in a way that it minimizes misunderstanding and maximizes understanding, and I'd rather look at it as a glass half full in maximizing understanding, that is done between a mix of words, or, you know, as Peter said, you know, the, the, the three paragraph to the stack of manuals, and it is done graphically. Um, you know, the old thing of a picture is worth a thousand words. It's real. Um, because if you're showing a basis of design, um, either aspiration or a basis of design must have to be able to get that across in a, in words and graphics where, cause you never know, you know, which one is going to pull out that information and get it codified because, you know, when you're, when Peter and his firm or, or we're taking on um, a tall, a high rise building. That is a huge amount of work and design is iterative and it always will be. But the more that you can do it once, do it right, then you can really get, um, you know, with, with a common, as much of a common understanding as possible, then you can really get into the meat of it, which is the fun of it um, in creating yeah. this. Yeah, it is fun. And and remember, architects, we're visual people. We're not word people. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the fact is, though, I do, when, when, when we, you go from the owner's project requirements then to the basis of design, I, I assume in your mind, um, uh, Mick, you, were, you meant like the base building documentation that, that, we, that we, the architects, then produce to make sure we understand what the owner, owner wants. And in, right. that, in that case, yes, we 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 do do that. We do that very um, very consciously because uh, it does get down to um, uh, what again we call it a base building document, and it gets down to what provisions are we making for everything from from um, you know the the lease span, the 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 uh, the, uh, the layouts desired, the planning module, down to how many how many watts per square foot is the uh, electrical system going to provide for small power? What's the lighting levels? So it's a very it's a tech it's a multidisciplinary technical document. And and uh, and I can't tell you uh, how important it is that every discipline is on board right at the start. Yeah, we we in our in our discussion about uh, about this podcast that we had earlier, you guys both em emphasized the interdisciplinary nature uh, intrinsic to um, appropriate tall building design. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It is huge. So uh, yeah, I you know th these uh, it, you know my my I, I'm not a practice I'm not a, a practicing architect. I've spent my career working with architects. Uh, so, you know, my, my, uh, my understanding of these things, you know, like the, the, the OPR and the BOD are, are a little bit vague, uh, I think, but my understanding is, you know, has been that the OPR is basically, basically establishes the goals of the owner and the, uh, the, the basis of design then is developed by the architect to realize these goals. So it goes, you know, f far deeper uh, than you know, than than the OPR does. But I get it that you know there's a there's a broad range in client type. Yeah, and I think that is a really good organizational framework. I think the only additive I would put on there is, you know, to the point Peter made, whether it's developer who is both looking for, you know, the aspirational but is focused on the bottom line, and folks who are doing it new. It does require an interaction on the owner requirement, so they can bring forward the things that they can, um, you know, basically define as to what their, you know, their requirements and goals are. But there does need to be that little that back and forth because from a conversation um, and an interactive conversation. It either A, validates it, or B, validates it with the following additions and, and edits. So um, so there is a just a little bit more, I think, to add there to the owner's requirements. I think your organizational structure is really good, organizational understanding. 
Yeah, uh, but I would also make the point that it's 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 often, especially with um, uh, uh, a first-time developer, and these tend to be uh, the ones that uh, maybe a, a competition in China that that uh, the city the city wants to put themselves on the map, so they want an iconic structure. The, these owners. Uh, OPRs, as, as you call them, Mick, can change over time during the life of the of the project. Uh, so, so they're so they're not set in stone, and it's really what usually changes is the aspirational aspect of it. You know, uh, you know, we want to go taller, <laughs> which we always like to hear, uh, or in some <laughs> cases we got to go smaller <laughs> because we can't afford this. Yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah. So, so, so it's not necessarily set in stone. At least those aspirational. Uh, requirement not yeah I have a I have a question queued up for you guys uh, that uh, I'll pose right now but I won't ask it right how tall is tall enough okay let's, let's put that aside you're asking uh, the wrong guys you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know let me ask you let me ask you this and I, I I'm asking this uh, you know for um, you know a, a segment of our inter, our industry that uh, you know that this is this is an active part of the dialogue that a lot of architects are struggling with. Um, what do you guys, as leading practitioners in in the design and delivery of tall buildings, what do you guys feel about the responsibility of the architect to educate your uh, your clients? Like, like um, uh, for, you know, we know that you know the the. That the clients are going to come to the table with budgetary considerations. I mean, that's, I think that's probably a given on every single project. But, uh, you know, these, these other things like, uh, you know, sustainability uh, and resilience attributes uh, and, and, you know, the, the energy performance, you know, criteria, the embodied carbon, you know, these kind of, of issues uh, you know, what, what kind of responsibility do you guys take to the table when meeting with the client? You have to be careful how you ask that, because I think architects in general, um, to the out, to the, to the outside world are seen as being somewhat arrogant because, you know, we're smarter than everybody else. Um, so, so the first thing you have to do is you have to listen to the client and, even a even a developer with a, with a with a fair amount of experience has areas that they're, they're either unfamiliar with or they or they or they don't think that they can do because it's not standard practice. So that so you first have to hear what they're saying and hear what they really want, and then um, if it's education, I think it's more a dialogue. Uh, Keith, you know you you, you you know you know it's 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 it can kind of be like a uh, a Socratic approach where if you ask the right question. You'll you'll get an answer, the right not the right answer, but you'll you'll get an answer that will help clarify the direction to go in. I completely I completely agree with that, Mick. To to your base question of educating the client, I would I would probably take the 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 phrase and call it you know educate the team and and to Peter's point on the Socratic method, do I think architects need to be leaders? Yes. Um, and, and by that, everybody brings their expertise to a high rise building and, and those who are, you know, let's just call them the prime or the, the most knowledgeable of an aspect. And, you know, now let's take it out to the exterior enclosure. I do think that the architect has a lead responsibility in that. Um, and and a smart architect uh, will will to Peter's point will will pull information from the client will will engage and pull information from the other disciplines and I really like the term interdisciplinary um, to the point where what needs to be established is established and then as design starts and continues to evolve architects while they are leading they also get educated because then it becomes that that wonderful you know sort of pot of soup where where you know the architect may be standing behind the pot of soup but everybody's got to add their ingredients to it um you know so that so that everybody's got skin in the game and they understand 
that every action has an equal and hopefully opposite reaction, but sometimes more than opposite reaction. And they've all got to pull in the same direction when you've got a design that starts to sing. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, how do you, uh, I'm, I, I, I haven't been there, but I imagine that owners, uh, the clients that you deal with uh, are kind of, can be all over the map, right? Like you can have a, a client like, um, oh, you know, the stories I've heard PNC bank building, you know, uh, Gensler on that job, PNC goes, I, we want to build the greenest building in the world. You know, that's, a, that's a powerful, uh, goal statement, uh, for a building project. Um, I mean, have you guys ever, have, have you guys ever said no to a client? Have your firms ever said no to a client? <laughs> um, in the way you just pitched it, the show, it is hard one answer. I don't think we've ever said, and, you know, Peter, add in here. I don't think we've ever said no, but, but what, what we do is, you know, what, and, and the example you just gave, that is a client giving an aspirational goal, a high aspirational goal. And, you know, goals should be lofty yet achievable. So on the, and that sort of ties back into the, you don't say no, that's a lofty goal. Now let's talk about ways that respond culturally, ways that respond environmentally, ways that respond um, from constructability, ways that install, in, you know, involve, you know, installation understanding. And, and all those have to get, have to get dialed in to the point where, it's not a no, it's a how-to. Right. Well, you know, uh, uh, an architect and client relationship is a lot like a marriage. And, and um, there sometimes has to be compromises on both sides to keep the relationship going. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are instances where, where for whatever reason, um, you know, it, it didn't fit. Rather than uh, getting married and then divorced later, sometimes, sometimes you do just think that that your goals and the client goals uh, maybe are not compatible. Well, I, I want to push you guys a little bit. You know, I mean, you know, I, I understand that. You know, I, I like I said, I work with a lot of architects. I understand the pragmatic pressures that you guys work under, and you're you, you're you're both very successful practitioners. I mean, you've, you've realized many uh, outstanding building projects. Uh, you know, I'm just looking at, you know, I'm considering where we are now in the built environment and where we need to get in, in order to be able to say that we have designed and created a, a sustainable built environment. And there's, there's a huge gap there. And, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we get from where we are now to where we need to go? Because it doesn't seem possible to get there through incremental change it seems like we need we need disruptive change which requires a lot of pressure a lot of innovation a lot of a lot of different things and i'm wondering if if you can if you look out into the future which i want to get you guys to do today and you know in our dialogue look what you use your experience as a base to look out and project what you see in the future can you imagine a time uh when an architectural firm as a policy, says no to clients that don't embrace sustainability and resilience or whatever you want to call it, platform that the firm, the architectural firm, has embraced. Yeah, the the uh, no, uh, and Mick actually, uh, I, I don't want to really speak for the firm, uh, but there have been times yeah. that that we've we've talked about uh, 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 basically um, having a client that didn't fit you know, where we wanted to go. But that's, but that's also a kind of a slippery slope because you want to do the, the, you want to keep things moving in a, in a direction. And, and maybe we all should stop being architects and be legislators because that, I tell you, uh, you know, that's, it's that kind of, uh, uh, change in direction. I mean, look what, what, what's happening in Europe. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that if without the very restrictive codes that they have in Europe and the very kind of, you know, um, socialized um, historical background uh, there, they would be even, they, would be, they wouldn't be where we are right now in the U.S. Um, it's yeah. it's going to take more than good intentions. I think you're going to, I think it really is going to have to be to, to level the playing field, especially uh, uh, since you know 
developers have 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 a right to make money as everybody else does, um, but it's going to take something that drastic to level the playing field. And I, I'm afraid I, I'll say maybe somewhat draconian. But then again, look in the world we're living in now. I'd like to pick up on one, one thing Peter just said there because I think he he hit on a key point when he said good intentions, and if you take that and 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 a a word in the things that you were saying, Mick, of innovation. I always equate, or shouldn't equate, but I think parallel to and interconnected to innovation is being clever. No matter what the requirements are, um, if there are good intentions and there are requirements that must be met, and I think Peter's spot on about you know Europe and in particular Northern Europe, and then if an architect can be clever on how to take the exterior enclosure and you know on a high rise building or a super tall building and and go about a problem solving process with you know other with owner and other you know disciplines involved and be clever on how to develop or you know create a design then develop design and then then be able to um to fine tune the details to support the design, that is a way that I think would elevate what the exterior enclosure does. Because the other thing you ask is, you know, in looking beyond what we expect, you know, facades, building envelopes, enclosures, you know, those sort of terms all, all talk about the same thing. You know, traditionally it was, you know, keep the water out, minimize the air, have as decent of a thermal envelope as you can, daylight transmission for what's going, you know, from outside to in. You know, and all those fundamentals of physics still have to be maintained. When we as architects can include clever in a clever way technologies known and to be developed where the exterior enclosure becomes generators, and generators for any number of things. The obvious one is energy, um, but become not only the that you know selective filter that we've all been taught on what a, an exterior enclosure is, and it also becomes a generator. Now we're getting somewhere. So Keith, Keith just came back to answer your question about educating the client, because that's exactly how you do it. You first you first listen to him. And then you put in his terms the rationale behind a certain technology or a certain approach to a project. And it doesn't always have to be high tech to be successful. Hmm. You know, we, 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 we love, obviously, architects are visual people. We love to see the sustainability aspect. But you know what? It doesn't have to be. It can be kind of, kind of plain Jane and still get the job done. So, you know, one of the things about, uh, you know, you know the, 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 this, um, this issue of um, powering the facade system, you know, it, one of the interesting things about tall buildings, if you look at the whole uh, net zero energy, net zero carbon building movement, which, you know, is, uh, it, it has progressed, you know, fairly significantly in recent years. Uh, most of it still is uh, small buildings, um, you know, n not many stories. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of you have this this issue with tall buildings. Most most of the, the uh, net zero energy stuff involves um, rooftop arrays of photovoltaic panels. Right. And the geometry of that just doesn't work with a tall building. You end up with all this building area and this tiny amount of rooftop area. Uh, which really speaks to the necessity to activate the facade system, right? This is a long-standing need. We've been building tall buildings for a long time. We've been talking about, you know, building integrated photovoltaics for years and years and years. Uh, it's not really manifested in any significant way. What's the problems? Uh, what what is the problem there? What do you see? You know, gazing into your crystal ball and looking out into the future on this one. Do you see this happening? Do you see it coming together? Well, well, there are quite a, quite a few examples, uh, not necessarily in the U.S., uh, but in London there there are a couple. But also a, a project that we did in in Seoul, South Korea, called uh, the 
FKI, Federation of Korean Industries. It's a headquarters building. So that was the first uh, good thing. So it was, it was not a developer's building. It was going to be occupied by, by the developer. Uh, and we have we uh, were able to integrate photovoltaics into the wall. You may have seen it. It kind of looks like a Chinese lantern. It's got it's got a a, a faceted facade where where the uh, the facet facing uh, west and and uh, and south facing upward has uh, integrated photovoltaics. But but the way that that happened is not only it, you know obviously we we drove it, um, but uh, South Korea at the time that the building was built had a policy to buy back the energy at seven times the cost. That'll drive the change. It's, yeah, and 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 and, but it's still. I think we we still figured out it would still take almost a decade to, to repay. So now now photovoltaics have come down in in price since then, but but like I would like we kind of I was mentioning before, it's going to take something like that, something to really incentive incentivize the uh, the uh, in integration of, of the wall. I also would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't say that there are some some concerns um, uh, from a technical standpoint, fire life safety standpoint, integrating a uh, energy producing <laughs> panel into the facade of a, of a of a building that luckily um, I haven't you know well that need to be addressed um, to make sure that it's, it's a safe thing to do. Yes, absolutely. I'll add on to that where, um, you know, when I used the term a few minutes ago of generator and you, you sort of naturally went to, you know, electricity via photovoltaics, I was using the term generator in a very macro sense. So to your, to your, also your other point of, you know, um, net zero is currently predominantly on smaller scale buildings. You know, I was part of a study last year with ASHRAE and, you know, NREL in Golden, Colorado, where we proved that 100,000 square foot office building, um, and we just classified as an office building for purposes of the study, um, that goes up to just under high rise, so say four to five floors, depending on the floor to floor height, we could achieve zero energy, and we dropped the word net, we, we could achieve zero energy in every climate zone. So do we know that it can work for you know, the 100,000 square feet or, you know, 10,000 square meter building, check, yes. Now, taking that to a high rise and, and using the, you know, the overarching, you know, the concept of generator, this is going to involve now the vertical surfaces much more than the horizontal surfaces. And it has to involve 360 degree, degrees around all cardinal directions. So it's not just what part of the building that sees sunlight back to the photovoltaics, but what can you do and what can the architect, I think, predominantly do with a basic understanding of physics to wind up using the side that is not sunward facing to still do work. And, and you know, there's, everybody thinks about, you know, sunlight, you know, energizing something that creates energy. Well, you also have to release and you have, you know, energy and you have to do all sorts of other things. So, I think the conceptual approach is how do you engage 360 degrees around a plan configuration for height and whether that's 400, 500, you know, 1500 feet tall, got, you know, the, the conceptual sort of wonderful conceptual problem is, or the, and take the word problem, I'll call it conceptual opportunity, is how you energize all of those vertical surfaces to do something as a generator. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can you get a, a little bit more specific? At what what form would those uh, opportunities take? That's where I think you know, and, and Peter hit hit really clearly on this a few minutes ago. That's where both technology on the active side and physics on the passive side um, need to be composed into a holistic design. And holistic is both achieving. The, uh, the visual aspects and the performance aspects, um, that's where case-specific solutions for case-specific climates, for case-specific building uses inside of that high-rise, um, those are tailor-made for each project. Now, do I know of a, you know, a suite, you know, of 
technologies that that sit off in a little basket somewhere where you go take this technology and plug it in here no um and and i don't think that would be appropriate you know i think photovoltaics and i think um you know ways of using water and then ways of using physics and ways of energizing sunlight ways of tapping you know spectrum of light that we haven't tapped yet for energy those are the wonderful opportunities yeah, I, I think going going back to Keith, you, you hit again one of the points that you made at the beginning. A, a building should be of its place. Uh, I know there, I know your firm has done some wonderful examples uh, in the Middle East uh, buildings that that are totally respond or their form is totally responsive to the the very hard and clear facts of 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 the environment, the climate there, and where the sun is, and and where the prevailing winds come. Mm-hmm. Um, so so. That's why you know. That's why you hire an architect to to start to address these things. So you guys have both mentioned a couple of times now the physics, and uh, one of you in our earlier warm up said uh, a statement what re- which resonated with me uh, that was never forget the physics. So can you talk right. a little bit about that? I mean, the hardcore building science of the the building skin in uh, in um, tall building applications. I mean, how how do you guys uh, uh, how do you, how does that integrate into your design process? Well, I, I think when we said don't forget the physics, and I think it was Keith that probably said it because he has a great way of turning a phrase. Um, <laughs> what 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 we really meant is that the passive aspects can be just as important as the active aspects, and uh, you know, so so you really do have to take into account. You know, the, you know how heat transfers, how how light how light is tran- transmitted, um, you know, gravity. <laughs> Agreed, you know. and and yeah, and yeah, Mick, both both in what Peter and I do for for a living, and it is a great way to make a living. Is you know, you, you never forget the physics, and and so adding on to you know those examples, you know, if you, if you want to talk about air, you need to basically understand pressure. And if you want to talk about water, you understand gravity, capillary action. If you want to talk about heat transfer, you need to understand, you know, permeability and resistance of materials. So, you know, this, it's sort of that wonderful um, intersection of physics and being clever on how to understand physics and materials and in the way materials are composed. And one of the examples, you know, when we were doing our warm up is, you know, Peter and I were espousing the um you know sort of a lot of the attributes of buildings that have been built for a while that are now being regenerated and refurbished um within in particular in urban environments where they were built so well with an understanding of of composition and materials and physics that a lot of those those assemblies can stay in place because they are still performing. And then you identify the underperforming aspects of it and try to marry the, you know, new interventions, new technologies with things that work. And that's why I think, you know, on the physics, it's, it takes an architect, an architect and an architectural team and an architecture engineering interdisciplinary team to, um, to basically squeeze every bit of, of good that you can from materials and assemblies utilizing the physics to the point where, you know, it goes back to your question of wind, it goes back to water, it goes back to air, it goes back to thermal, it goes back to sunlight. And all of those are things that, you know, that we learned in high school. And, and now they're, you know, those, those, those basic fundamental teachings that we all got, we need to continue to put those into practice and elevate how they are executed. Yeah, I, th- I think we 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 as a profession uh, kind of became uh, in the I'll call it the mid-century modern, you know, post World War II buildings. Uh, we came drunk with power, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 it was the power uh, of of the the active systems physics, you know, uh, carriers, air conditioning, and and uh, all the uh, the amazing things uh, uh, that 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 brought. And energy was cheap, and you know we're, we're elevators. Elevators, yeah. But but you know there's there's obviously come a reckoning to, to all that stuff. But and 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 I think again in our warm up we also were talking about the 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 fabric of the city. Um, 
you know, I live in Chicago and Chicago um, has a great uh, late 19th century, early 20th century fabric and, and history. And, and, and those buildings are, are, are substantial, they're robust, uh, but of course they, they're, they're kind of out of date and, and they need a lot of, lot of uh, updating. And so if, if we can, you know, what, what's the most, the, the most sustainable building is one that's not built. So if we, we should be harvesting uh, our city, uh, mining our city, and and uh, and uh, creating, creating uh, uh, or reusing and repurposing uh, these buildings. I agree, and Peter and I are both fortunate enough. You know, while he lives there in Chicago, I'm here on the West Coast, and while we truly understand our local environment, we're both fortunate enough to be able to work in multiple places around the world, in all sorts of different climates, and the the design response for you know a hot humid climate is different than a design response for a cold climate than you know a dry climate and and now you take that you put it you know to a focus on the exterior enclosure and exterior enclosure for a high rise those design responses need to truly acknowledge the local climate and all of the um you know the the cultural piece that goes with it but you know since we're sort of on a performance topic here, or at least I think it's more of a performance topic, how to come forward with technologies and design solutions. And you can put, you can interchange which one of those words go first um, to a response that is appropriate for that climate. Because if you truly live in harmony with, with nature, then by, by basically, you know, the, the fundamental composition and the, um, you know, and the passive strategies, then you find appropriate technologies or you you get you know clever and innovative and you come up with a newer technology or a newer material that that just continues to elevate their performance and their therefore elevate the performance um or the um you know the the response to that and and that's when you know that's when you've got a truly purposeful design for the enclosure for a high rise no matter where it is yeah we we, we talked about um you know uh, balanced design was one of the things we talked about you know the aesthetics the technical approach uh and and taking into consideration the, the stakeholders um uh which include both on the design side and and the operation side and the uh, and uh, and and the future occupants of a, of, a, of a building, it's important to to kind of kind of keep that in mind. And then because I I know you haven't you haven't said it yet, Mick, but I'm waiting for you to use the word integration. I haven't. <laughs> no, and, and I'm sure Peter and I are both nope, just. Just throw that piece of raw meat in front of us. <laughs> that's right. Go. <laughs> and, then, and then, and and that's that brings us back to the interdisciplinary team. I think, um, you know, we we have to we the architect generally we're the leaders of the team. Let, let let's uh, I won't be shy about that. Uh, and so that's but it's very important. Again, like you listen to the client, you need to listen to your team, and you need to you need to understand. Um, um, you know, you know. Are, are you, the 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 basic physics need to be understood because that'll get you a long way to understanding what the engineers are talking about. That's true. So how does this integration play? You know, you, you, you you've talked about the interdisciplinary teams, which is a form of integration, and then you've got you know the integration that that occurs. Uh, you know, in the physical aspects of the the building skin and, and the in the facade zone and in, in the interaction of uh, you know the the components uh, of the building and the facade system, like the you know the uh, the daylighting controls, automated blinds, sensors, controllers. Yeah, all all that is all that is a manifestation of the design process. That and again, you can't like making the stew. You can't throw in too many potatoes because you need to have to make sure the meat uh, still still tastes good. Um, but but taking into account all of the various disciplines that have a have a stake in that exterior wall, the performance of that exterior wall. Just to be clear, um, with what Peter and I have 
had the opportunity to do and have had for a while. So in high-rise buildings with high-performance exterior enclosures, we have developed that expertise by doing it and doing it and doing it over and over again and each time trying to make it better. So so there is an expertise level in that. Um, on collaborators to make an interdisciplinary team, whether it's, you know, you pick your favorite discipline, um, you know, to talk about first, but all of those have to have both an area of expertise. They've got to have the interest. They've got to be clever. So then you can start to get, instead of, you know, mechanical engineer thinking only about what happens within the floor plate of the building, a truly clever and uh, mechanical engineer who has who has also worked on high rises realizes that that exterior envelope has got you know sort of fertile ground that that hasn't really been you know um, you know has I don't want to use the word exploited but it hadn't been explored enough. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head because because you have to have you and clever. I I don't I don't like to use the word clever because it sounds like you're trying to put something over on somebody. But but you have to have smart, dedicated, and focused um, engineers that help you realize realize the vision. And they help you realize vision if you understand how to help them. So if I can if I can uh, develop an exterior wall that reduces the uh, need for for air conditioning. I can reduce the size of the system, which, which saves him money, which makes him look like a, a hero, and and it and and that goes for all the disciplines. Um, if we're if we're cognizant of of what their needs are, and and if we're all going after the same goal, and Mick playing into that, that also gets into you know, something that we haven't touched on yet, which are efficiencies. So you know to 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 the you know so the add-on that Peter just put there is. You know, if mechanical engineer realizes that the exterior enclosure through things that both and maybe others bring to a proposed solution and there's less that's needed inside. And let's just say, you know, for a discussion point that it's less needed either below the floor in a raised floor or above, you know, or underneath the slab up in a ceiling type space, whether it's got a, you know, a finished ceiling in it or not, then then there's an efficiency there where either A, you're going to get sunlight deeper back into a space or B, you can reduce the floor to floor. So therefore the buildings become more efficient. And if the floor to floors are less, there's less exterior wall. So there's less embodied carbon to construct the exterior wall. You not only get into the high performance aspect of it, but when you start really getting efficiencies where each design discipline is helping to bring efficiencies to the overall building composition resulting in what it can do for the exterior wall. Now you've, now, you know, now you've at least got seven of eight cylinders um, on, and though I shouldn't use cylinders, whatever the electric engine component of that is. Um, <laughs> the at, coils, um, I think. The coils, but, there you go. You know, um, you, you, you just, can I mention one of my favorite words? Because you, you just said it in, in so many words, serendipity. Yeah. There's there's one thing helps another, and serendipity means it positively affects and helps something, whereas whereas uh, whatever the opposite of serendipity is, uh, cacophony, is sometimes you can you can if you if you don't manage the process you can hurt each other. But but using these efficiencies in a complementary way uh, is so key to a successful project, and and that that will start to get us. Um, you know, approaching the goal that that you started this discussion with, Mick, about you know either zero energy or or whatever, we need to every 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 element needs to work together. Yeah, I, I would uh, also float out there the the term synergy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And a, and a guy that used to use that term a lot, um, our Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. Uh, and. You know, he used to talk about, uh, he used to encourage us as designers to be what he called anticipatory design scientists, you know, so I, the, I've never forgotten that the term resonated deeply with me. But, you know, from that standpoint of anticipation, how do you guys, do you anticipate in the d design of your building, the forces of obsolescence that will act on that building, 
the maintainability of the building and the facade system, future upgrades and renovations to the facade system, and ultimately the the disassembly and disposal of that facade system in that building. I mean, does that enter at all into uh, your your early on design thinking? Yes. <laughs> Short answer is yes. Um, and 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 long maybe a little bit longer answer is. I know a word that I use a lot, um, both when I'm designing and designing with a team, is is both durability and longevity. <laughs> Peter and I are of a similar vintage, so we've been around enough where been around long enough where you know I'm seeing some of the things that I worked on early in my career being renovated now, and it is a very sobering thing. Um, but that is you know, 30 plus years on from, from one of them, which was the first job in my career, it's being renovated. It's not being torn down. Um, it's not being recycled yet. (laughs) And hopefully not in my lifetime, but that building was put together with a goal of long-term durability, therefore long-term value. So I do think in the designs that we're doing today, they have a much longer life expectancy, uh, both because of the initial investment and just the, the configuration. You know, a high-rise building is difficult to disassemble. It's not impossible. But you want to do it to the point where those materials that go into the ultimate assemblies can perform with minimal maintenance and as technology advances, I think the more that things can easily be, you know, it's an overused term, but plug and play, where active technologies are always um, being either enhanced or, or made to work, you know, finer, you know, that's that's everything, you know, from the vacuum tube down to the transistor down to the microchip is probably the best example. And that is a technology that's come from, what, the 50s to where we are today in a relatively short period of time. They've gotten better, faster, smaller, and I think that's where exterior enclosure technology is going also. Yeah, I think we're a lot smarter uh, about materials. We Well, we, we also have a lot of failures that we can look at, which which doesn't sound good, but that's actually how, 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 you, how you learn a lot. And, you know, because original, again, talking about uh, post-World War II in the U.S., uh, uh, modernism, as as practiced by SOM, as Mies and uh, and and others, um, uh, was was a response, was an aesthetic response, but it also was kind of an economic and a technolo- technological uh, uh, response. So it was all it was all kind of mixed together. A lot of it um, was the technology was employed to really reflect an aesthetic desire. Uh, and a lot of those early buildings, they they had just amazingly wonderful walls. You know, the walls got thinner and thinner, and more and more glass, and and new materials. Aluminum was a new material that was used in building. You know, for the first time, you know, af- after the war, uh, in, a, in in major in major ways, uh, the ability to extrude, you know, you know, stick systems, mullions, and and such. That technology again, we kind of again got a little drunk on the technology because we were able to do so many things. And create this, this stunning aesthetic, and we inherited that. Keith and I kind of inherited that when when we when we started our careers many years ago. But we also were able to learn from the, the learn the lessons learned, um, because there were a lot of lessons learned. There were a lot there, there were a lot of uh, problems, a lot of failures, and and so we, we are the beneficiaries of that. And so that's why I think we actually I, I, I you know I think I think we've really come a long way. Now it doesn't mean that we don't have a long way to go. And riffing, riffing on that just a little bit and Mick, this, hopefully this takes it to where I think you're probably headed next is as Peter was talking about, you know, sort of, you know, the post-World War II, there were a lot of materials that came into the use in architecture that weren't used predominantly before. So if we use that as a, you know, look at a sea change in architecture where and, and we now tie back in the interdisciplinary part, um, beyond the normal expected suite of collaborators, you know, of engineers and architects, where 
where I know we're seeing a lot of advancements is now pulling in other industries. I always learn from the automotive industry, probably more so on glass because they're usually somewhere between five and 10 years out ahead of us. Um, we, we learn a lot from, you know, from the incubator and the, and the startup firms say in Silicon Valley, where, you know, 10 years ago, I got pulled in with, with, with a glass company down there to, to basically be a, a, both an architectural and technical advisor on electrochromic glass to get it into scale for architecture and how it could perform. So where owners and the, well, let's just start where it should really start, where the environment and then owners and then, you know, users are going to benefit is when architectural teams expand the suite of collaborators to disciplines beyond and to fields beyond, you know, the existing understood architectural and engineering disciplines and pull that type of technology into the exterior enclosure. Yeah, you know, there's so much to talk about. We're pretty far in at this point. We're going to have to be wrapping it up pretty soon. But uh, you know, I, you know, I, we haven't even had a chance to talk about materials, right? I, you know, and I want to talk about geometric complexity and digital workflows and this kind of thing, and and uh, w- what you guys are are doing uh, in that respect. I want to talk about embodied carbon. You know, I mean, the tall buildings are, this is a huge issue with tall buildings. And, you know, the work that SOM has been doing with, um, you know, mass timber, you know, and, and, and this kind of thing in buildings. And, and, and I think we could do a whole session on, uh, on renovating, you know, these mid-century modern buildings and the, you know, the lessons to be learned there, you know, why we're struggling with, with uh, renovating these buildings and have we improved significantly the way that we're designing the buildings now over what we were doing then because it's, it's uh, you know, it's such a problem then. But before I let you guys go, you know, I want to ask what I always ask when I'm talking with architects. And, you know, I certainly don't want to make an exception with you two. And Keith, you opened the door talking about durability and longevity. So my question is, how long should a tall building last? Uh, realistically, uh, in- indefinitely. Yeah, what a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> What do you, what do you, what do you think, Keith? <laughs> First off, I echo what Peter said, and and if if somebody wanted to put it into an actual year type of thing, I would say at a minimum hundred to one hundred and fifty years. Seriously, um, that's that is what the design threshold should be at a minimum. Yeah, which I think is like a way uh, is way short of the way that we should be thinking about it. But but even so, take a hundred or one hundred and fifty years. How long in that context? How long should the building skin? What, what should be the service life for the building skin? Same. So you think the building skin, as originally designed and executed, should last for a hundred to one hundred and fifty years? I think that it it, it may not have the same components in it. Bingo. Though. Exactly. It may not and. You know, there may be additives that when, you know, that when it would elevate performance could happen. But I think the notion that that all of those materials, you know, the fact that they're going to go into the exterior enclosure, which is working really, really hard, not only for the fundamentalized, but, but you know, whatever type of generator and other aspects that are part of that, it, it's got to do that. And so... Can it be modified, renovated, updated? Sure, if it elevates the performance. But at a minimum, all those materials and that system has got to go to Peter's point and our, my point on indefinitely, but at a minimum 100 to 150 years. That's the way it's got to be. Now, is it going to need routine maintenance? Absolutely. Um, but, but those you shouldn't have to go up and take out large portions or or fastidiously have to take a year to you know go up and down an elevation and up and down an elevation to change out systematically a a material or a component all the way up and down that is just short-sighted or or cease building operations for a year or two years or 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 whatever exactly and 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 we've all i know both peter and i both worked on renovations of a high-rise. I remember early on in my career, we did a renovation on another architect's building 
uh, for 50 stories, full 50 story rehab. Um, and occupants stayed in place when we did it. And it was a big intervention, but, but, you know, the users and therefore the owner, you know, unless, you know, this gets down to, you know, the hard tax of income stream, they need to keep those buildings functioning to keep, you know, money flowing so that the upgrades and renovation can occur. Yeah, buildings built, but buildings do have lives. I mean, the 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 fact is that you know nothing nothing does last forever. <laughs> but uh, as long as it's as long as it's you know the, the thing that a tall building has, especially the way we build build them now, is that they are made of components, uh, and the components are relatively easy to swap out in in a way if uh, for some reason they they stop performing. Um, so, so I actually, I think, again, I think this is, we're building smarter than we used to build. Yeah. You know, the thing I would argue is, you know, when you look at, when you look at unitized curtain wall systems, uh, swapping out a curtain wall unit is a very challenging endeavor. And in that respect, you know, the, uh, the old, uh, stick built systems had certain advantages, you know, over the, the unitized systems. I think, I think the unitized systems, I 30, 40, I 50, disagree. 60 years from now are going to prove to be. So, so tell me. Okay. I'll, I'll lead in. If we go back to, and Peter made a good point a minute ago, changing out components when designed, not if, when designed properly, we are much smarter at that nowadays. So I wouldn't see it, you know, Mick, to your point of, of taking out whole units and putting whole other units in that's, that's a full scale redo. But if you look at sort of the fundamentals of where's the primary air and water line, you know, where's the primary line of insulation, where's the primary line for acoustics, which we haven't even, you know, we haven't scratched that surface yet. Um, but, um, but when those, those components and let's just say for purposes of conversation, a gasket, is accessible by, you know, say removing an interior trim and aha, you know, there's the primary air and water line. And we've now got a, a better component that can improve, you know, air and water to be able to get to that. Then that's something that can be done systematically while everything remains, you know, moving forward, you know, in the, in the buildings in use. That's why I think a smartly designed unitized, which gets usually into prefabricated where the level of quality is higher. I think that's why Peter and I came out so strong as we disagree on, on the, you know, the comparison between the stick and the unit, because, you know, the stick just had so many, you know, field assembled parts, which relies on perfection and you can't get perfection on site. And most of them were internal and you'd have to take it apart to get to them. Not only that, also the st- the sticks tend tended to maybe be three floors tall. Well, uh, right, but look, you know, look at look at the, the you know the most successful the most successful and easy uh, you know facade system uh, renovations that I've seen are the ones you know like the you know the the Sears Tower you know where you've got these big heavy vertical mullions that are left in place and used to support uh, you know a, a, a unitized cladding system over the top of that right and you don't have that on on existing buildings and keith you know to your point you have you have you know that your air and moisture barrier on contemporary curtain wall systems is tucked up in a in a channel on the chicken head where it, it can you know from the time it's it's installed it can never be inspected or maintained or anything else so what you're well, talking no, about no 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 wait 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 Yes, it does, because there are some that are internal, you know, all the way to the back where you can get to them. You know, the ones that are in the middle, there's also ways of getting to those. And, and also they're in a much, a much better protected position. You know, how many, how many, how many uh, 60s buildings have you seen recalked? Yeah, um, because the caulking was on the outside, and the UV gets to it, and and all of a sudden you have to you have to reseal the whole building. Whereas whereas the 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 fact is that those gaskets, and you know maybe they're they're hard to replace, but they're in a much better protected position. No UV and a lot better. And you know I disagree with you on the Sears Tower because I know a little bit about the Sears Tower. It's it's not really a curtain wall. It's got a lot of components, and I think the the unitized system. I, I know I know they're all interlocked, but I think I think the fact is that the uh, it, it, they're a lot. It's a lot easier to place a, a unit that's a, a single floor than something that spans three or four floors. And that's how you can start to keep 
you know, the, uh, the, the occupants in situ while you're doing that. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll find out, but have you guys, uh, have you guys seen, uh, you know, a curtain wall design that specifically anticipates the future retrofit and how that will be accomplished and how those, you know, how it works, how, if, you know, whether or not the seals are inspected and replaced, um, you know, at some point in during the service life of the facade system and that kind of thing. I've seen them where you can, you can get to it, how the seals are inspected and potentially replaced. Have I seen one where the design contemplates, you know, a full renovation or replacement? The short answer is no, but all of them are geared towards a much longer service life than what we would have seen on exterior walls that we were designing in, you know, the eighties, nineties, and for that matter, even the early two thousands. All uh, all uh, unitized walls that we design will always have two lines of defense, and the exterior line of defense actually usually is pretty pretty accessible, uh, especially in the kind of the butt blaze jobs. Interior might be a little uh, harder to get to, but then again, maybe it's not not replacing it with the same gasket. Maybe maybe if it fails, you'd actually have to have to do something a little differently. You know. So, but I I, I agree with with Keith. I, I really think it's it's much conceptually it's much uh, uh, more feasible or uh, approachable. And I think that's the key term. I think conceptually, there's much more of of a long lasting conceptual approach to everything in in what we're seeing in in the contemporary designs and i think as long as designs continue to evolve as long as that same concept of longevity and durability are there the better so this is a good time to uh cut it off i didn't get to a lot of my questions uh including how tall is tall enough so let's save that for uh, you know a, a, a future one. So much to talk about. We barely scratched the surface on these things. We've definitely got to do a session on these renovation issues. Keith, you got to show us you know some detail uh, about you know about how these curtain wall systems can be maintained into the future. How uh, you know we're, we are extending the service life of, of these systems. Uh, uh, you know, many, many things, the materiality of these struck, uh, of these uh, buildings, um, you know, the sustainability of uh, tall buildings as a building type. Uh, you know, what are the, you know, I, what, what are the claims for the benefits of tall buildings uh, and what are the counterclaims? A great many things to talk about. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. You were great. This is great fun. Um, you know, Keith Boswell with SOM, Peter Weissmantle with Adrian Smith and Gordon Gill. Uh, people, I, I know that there are things here that are uh, that you agree with and that you don't agree with. Some of these points are controversial. We would love to hear your comments uh, about uh, what you do agree with and disagree with, what you would like to hear more about. Contact us at skins at facadetectonics.org and Stay healthy. Have a lovely day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.